0: Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole, and I am excited to be back with you here today for another episode. Today, we have a listener question that we're going to go through. It is a question that comes up quite a lot when I talk to clients, and so I'm excited to be able to unpack this question on today's episode. And before we jump into today's episode, just another quick reminder, as I've talked about the last couple episodes, we are now on YouTube. So if you like watching content or consuming content outside of just this podcast, which I hope is helpful, then explore the videos and the resources that we have on our YouTube page as well. The YouTube page is called Root Financial Partners, so R-O-O-T, Financial Partners. That's the name of my financial planning company, and that's what our YouTube is under as well. So be sure to check that out on YouTube. Make sure if you've not already done so, please subscribe and please leave a review or a five-star review if you're enjoying this podcast. And without further ado, let's jump into the question for today. This question today comes from Jim. Jim says, hi, James. I am thankful for the podcast content you provide. Very educational and useful. Thank you, Jim. I was just wondering if you could provide an overview of a suggested asset allocation and asset location for someone who is at or in retirement. FYI, I will be 56 in December and I plan to retire in April 2022. My wife is also 55 but plans to work at least another two years to reach her 30-year pension. We both plan to delay our pensions to 65 and social security until 70. I also have about three years of living expenses in cash now, plus a home equity line of credit I could use to provide another two years of living expenses if needed or to avoid sequence of return risk. So basically, we will be able to delay withdrawals from both our 401ks until around age 60. I'd appreciate any macro level insight or suggestions you can provide. I will continue listening and keep up the great work. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that question. By the way, if you are listening and have a question, you can always ask it at readyforretirement.co. I look at all the questions that come in and I'll either respond with a little message directly if I feel it's just a quick, easy question to respond to directly, or I will save it to respond to on a future episode. So what Jim is asking is how do I think about my investment mix and where I have my investments between different types of accounts as I plan to retire sometime within the next 12 months here. All right. So let's explore this. Here's the general approach that you would take here. Just looking at classical financial planning theory or classical financial planning methodology. What you do is you say, okay, I'm retired. I'm going to take my portfolio, invest it in a 60, 40 mix or 65, 35 mix of stocks and bonds. I'm going to create four to 5% of income from there. And I'm just going to go off and be merry and enjoy my retirement. But that might not do you much good here. And here's why. Number one, it's looking like Jim and his wife are going to have an early retirement. So, and when I say early, of course, I'm just using early relative to this quote unquote standard retirement age of age 65. So early retirement is going to impact le- that a little bit. Number two, strong income sources. It looks like there's both Social Security and pensions for each of them. So that's going to have a role in terms of how should you have your assets allocated. Number three, not only do they have strong income sources, but they're somewhat inconsistent income sources. And I shouldn't say inconsistent, that's maybe the wrong word, but it's not a level income source. It's not as if Jim and his wife retire and then have the same exact income every single year. It looks like there's going to be a long period of time with no income, and then a period of time with higher income when the pensions start, and then a period of time with even higher income once social security kicks in from there. And then finally, the fourth Thing is I have no idea if these pensions are covered or non-covered, meaning will they impact social security? There's the windfall elimination provision. So WEP, WEP, and the government pension offset, GPO, that if these are government pensions that you're receiving and you received these pensions from work credits that you received while you weren't paying into social security, that is going to impact your social security benefit. So there's a few different things that we have to consider here that don't just follow the general standard approach of Invest your portfolio the right way and just take the standard withdrawal rate. So, where would I start with this? I would start with this. The first thing that I want to know, Jim, is what are your expenses? Really, at the end of the day, your portfolio is a tool, and your portfolio is a tool to help you generate the income you need to generate in order to do everything that you want to do in retirement. So, when you retire, what is it that you want to do? What are the things that you need to spend money on? Because once we know what those expenses are, That's where we can really start to understand what role does your portfolio play in generating income to offset those expenses. The second benefit of that is understanding what your expenses are going to be throughout retirement. And there's plenty of episodes. We've talked about this before. So if you need help understanding how to understand or how to calculate what your expenses will be, you can check out episode sixty eight where we talked about generally how much do people spend in retirement, but more specifically episode number seven of talking about how you can understand how much it will cost for you personally to retire and the best way to approach that. So understand what your expenses are because the second piece of that, as I mentioned, is you mentioned, Jim, that you will have your pension starting at 65 and not just pensions, but delayed pensions, meaning those pension income numbers probably continue to rise until 65 And Social Security at age 70, which means you're maxing out your benefit there too. So one question I might have is once you know what your expenses are, let's assume they're $100,000, just to use an easy number, how much income is going to be coming in from your pension and Social Security after tax? So maybe the tax part's harder to calculate at first, but how much gross income will you receive from those? So before taxes, let's assume that you have a very strong pension and that your Social Security by age 70 is a very strong Social Security benefit. It's not outside of the question to think that you might easily have more than enough income just from your pension and social security to fully fund all of your expenses. So when you understand what your expenses are, you get a very clear picture of how much needs to be generated in income from your portfolio or cash up until pension and social security starts and then how much, if anything, still needs to come from your portfolio after pension and social security start. So in doing this, you'll start to see an income gap of maybe in later years, all of your expenses or most of your expenses or maybe just some of your expenses are covered by Social Security and pension. But then in earlier years, there's most likely going to be an income gap because you mentioned you're going to retire. You have cash to live on. You think you might start drawing down your 401k around age 60. So really understanding what that gap will be. You do that because that directly should dictate how much of your portfolio you should have in different types of investments. I'll often use kind of an overly simplified way of looking at this when we talk about this on the podcast, or even I'm talking with with clients, and I shouldn't say it's overly simplified, but just using a simple starting place, maybe you want to have at least five years of expenses set aside in something that's very conservative that's not going to be subject to the ups and downs of the stock market. The last thing you want to do is if you retire and then we have a 2008 type stock market event, well, if your stock investments drop 40, 50% or so in every single thing you have in stock investments, that's not going to be a very fun time to retire. You're going to be forced to sell good investments at really bad prices, and it's just going to compound the negative impact of that stock market downturn. So you might want to have about five years of expenses in cash and bonds or other similar type investments that aren't subject. To the stock market. It's hard to understand how much that amount should be until you really understand what your expenses are. But once we have an understanding of what your expenses are, then Jim, we can really just simply multiply that number by five. And that could be the portion of your portfolio that's in cash, bonds, other conservative investments. Again, this isn't the only way of doing this. I'm just trying to simplify this approach here to look at this very high level. But that's the portion of your portfolio you could think about putting into conservative investments. Now, anything above and beyond that, we might not want to have too much money in conservative investments because interest rates are so low. And if inflation, say, increases by 3%, 4 5% per year, there's concerns about inflation right now. Let's just say it increases at 3% per year, the long-term average. And let's assume you have bonds paying 2% to 3% per year. You are guaranteed to lose purchasing power year by year with any money that you have in bonds at that point. Now, again the goal of bonds is not to grow your portfolio. The goal of bonds is to serve as a ballast or to serve as income when needed. But in looking at it this way, this is showing you how much you could potentially put into things like stocks or things that are going to grow a lot more and how much you need to have in bonds so that you have income available to you if and when the stock market does drop. Now, that's not the only purpose for bonds. The other purpose for bonds is it serves as the ballast to your portfolio. If you were looking at this and say, look, James, I just don't like the stock market volatility. I know I need some in stocks, but I don't want to have too much in stocks. That could be a reason to increase the amount you have in bonds above and beyond just call it five years of living expenses set aside there. If you don't want to go through an experience where you're down 30%, 40% or more in the portfolio, you will need to have some more conservative investments like that. So understanding your risk tolerance is a secondary I shouldn't even say secondary, but the co-primary consideration when you're looking at your mix of investments. One is how much do you need to have in bonds and cash? Two is how much do you feel comfortable having in bonds and cash to mitigate the impact of the stock market? So as you can see here, there's not just one single way to think about how much you should have in stocks and how much you should think about having in bonds. That's actually one of my biggest complaints with the way people typically do retirement planning, is they assume, okay, you're retired, you should have a 60-40 portfolio, or you should have a 65-35 portfolio. And a big part of that just comes from the fact that many of the studies done on a sustainable withdrawal rate when you look at like the, the 4% rule for example or you look at Guyton's guardrails for example talking about how much can a portfolio sustainably generate without running a major risk of running out of money over a period of 30 to 40 years they start by using portfolios and testing portfolios primarily in the 60 to 65% stock range but that's not the only consideration you need to have say you have someone that retires with a million dollars and they want to spend $50,000 per year from their portfolio And say you have another person who retires with $10 million, and they too want to spend $50,000 per year from their portfolio. Well, should both those people have a 60-40 model? The first person, if this individual has a million bucks and wants to spend 50 grand, that's $400,000 in bonds, which represents about eight years of living expenses in bonds, which maybe isn't too unreasonable to have. That's maybe a good place to start. Well, now compare that with a person who has $10 million in their portfolio. If they also have a 60-40 portfolio, that's $4 million that they have in bonds. And if they want to spend $50,000 per year, they have 80 years worth of living expenses inside that bond portfolio. So while saying you should have a 60-40 portfolio or thereabouts in retirement is a good place to start, it is by no means the be-all end-all. So in advising on asset allocation or how much should I have in stocks and bonds, you do need to make sure that you have enough in bonds or conservative investments to protect against down years in the stock market. You do need to make sure you have enough in stocks to protect against the erosion of purchasing power through inflation over time. But once you're at a point where you have more than enough to do that and then some, you could really do whatever you want with the excess when you think about it that way. You could almost look at it as what's the exact amount I need in stocks and bonds to generate my level of income throughout retirement. And there's going to be some finite level of dollars that are required to do so. Well, theoretically, any amount that you have above and beyond that, you can ask yourself, what's your goal for that? Is your goal to maximize growth, maybe to start a legacy for your family or continue a legacy for your family or to be able to do some extra giving or extra fun along the way? Great. You want to, you can invest that money in more aggressive investments, more growth oriented investments. Is your goal to say, How can I create the most secure retirement possible? And to me, security means not going through any more ups and downs in the stock market than I possibly have to. Well, then you maybe want to invest that a little bit more conservatively to create that sense of security. Now, the flip side to that is security today means lack of security sometimes in the future, just in the sense you're not keeping up with purchasing power but we've already established the fact that you have enough in stocks and bonds to do both those things with the starting portion of your portfolio. So what is the right asset allocation? It's a very personal decision and it's something that that should be looked at from all angles, both in terms of what do you need to have from a necessity standpoint in different types of investments, but then what do you want to have with any amounts above and beyond that? And that should be driven by your goals and what's most important to you and whether that's long-term legacies type stuff, whether that's security, whether that's growth, it's a very personal decision. Now, the other part of Jim's question here was not just asset allocation, but asset location. Mentioned that as we're looking at this, how do you, or could you provide an overview of suggested asset allocation and asset location for someone who is at or in retirement? Well, we just talked about asset allocation for those of you listening, maybe you've never heard the term asset location. What that means is once you've determined the mix of stocks and bonds and different asset classes that you want to invest in, the next piece of this is asset location. So where do you own different types of stocks and bonds? And that's important because when you're looking at your investments, your return is going to come with one of three places, interest, dividends, or capital appreciation, or in other words, growth on your investments. Each of those things can be taxed differently. Some are taxed more efficiently than others. And so for the things that are taxed less efficiently, we want to own those in IRAs and Roth IRAs, where you're not going to be paying any taxes because all taxes are either tax deferred or tax free. For things that are more tax efficient, you want to own those outside of IRAs or Roth IRAs, because if you're going to be paying taxes in a brokerage account or just a standard taxable account, you want to minimize those taxes as much as possible. Now, here's the thing, asset location, in my opinion, should never trump asset allocation, meaning asset allocation should always come first and then you fill in using asset location. There's a saying that you should never let the tail wag the dog. Well, I can see this happening quite a bit with asset location. Never let the tax tail wave the asset allocation dog, which is not going to sound as cool as the, the original saying, but you get the picture of asset allocation is by far more important than asset location, which is also important, but do not make asset location the priority at the expense of your asset allocation and changing your asset allocation just to fit the asset location principles we talked about. So when you're looking at this gem or anyone else who's listening, the asset location is a secondary thing. So once you come up with the right mix of stocks and bonds at a high level, the next step is start filling in the gaps. So, okay, we have the bond portion of our portfolio. Maybe we want to put as many bonds as possible into our IRAs and 401ks where all the growth is tax deferred. Then any of the stock portion, as much as possible, we want to put that into our brokerage account because the taxes on capital gains is lesser than the taxes on interest and non-qualified dividends. One thing to note here, and this is where I'll disagree with a lot of people. Some people talk about using asset location and because of that, put tax inefficient things like bonds into a Roth IRA. To me, that does far more harm than good. I want to see your Roth IRA grow as much as possible. I want your Roth IRA to become your biggest account over time within reason. So why on earth would we put bonds in a Roth IRA if all the future growth in the Roth IRA is completely tax free? If I'm going to retire at 55 or 56, I want that account to double, triple, quadruple in size over the next couple decades or so because all of that money is completely tax free. Why on earth would I want bonds in there, which is going to keep my Roth IRA smaller, which is going to limit the amount of tax-free income that I can have? So other people will look at this and look at it from such an academic standpoint that they, they lose sight of the forest through the trees. They're so focused on the details that they miss the big picture of, wow, how can we maximize the growth in our Roth IRA? And in fact, having bonds in the traditional IRA accomplishes the same purpose if we're trying to do some tax planning. If we want to limit the growth in one of these accounts, well, sometimes it can be best to do that to your IRA because by limiting growth, we're limiting future required distributions and we're limiting the balance that is going to be growing and subject to taxes as we implement a Roth conversion strategy. So that's a bit of an aside, but what I would say here is fill in using asset location, but not at the expense of your asset allocation, not at the expense of owning the right types of investments along the way. Now, for you, Jim, the interesting thing here is... With your asset allocation and your asset location, asset location would say to put stocks in your brokerage account. Well, you've already told us that you have some cash, that you can live on that cash for your first few years of retirement. If that cash is literally cash, then then never mind what I'm about to say. But if that cash is really just your way of saying I have funds in a brokerage account, a cash account that you can access as needed, well, if that's what you plan on living on, And if asset location would say, okay, you want to use stocks in your brokerage account to mitigate the impact of taxes. Well, if those those are your first few years of living expenses, we probably don't want those to be in stocks because stocks, if they go down in value, you don't want that to derail your ability to create income for yourself. So this is another area where we have to balance the tax benefits of asset location with The practicality and the reality of understanding what types of assets do we need to have in this type of an account that aren't subject to the ups and downs of the stock market to live on in those initial years of our retirement. So this is where you can start to see how different strategies that make sense by themselves and individually have different impacts when you actually see how they impact other parts of your financial planning. Now, another thing with this is with your asset location, if you're in a much lower tax bracket, then asset location becomes much less important. Asset location is most important when you're in a very high tax bracket, because that's the point at which interest that you're receiving and non-qualified dividends that you're receiving when you're in a high tax bracket, those are taxed at higher ordinary income tax brackets. But if you retire and you're living on cash, asset location becomes much less important because you're going to be in such low tax brackets that the dividends and the interest that you're receiving, unless you have a substantial amount in these accounts, probably isn't going to push you over into too high of a tax bracket. Now, one additional thing that we haven't talked about at all today, but would be vitally important or that would probably add a huge amount of value to what you're doing, Jim, would be Roth conversions and Roth conversion strategy. I've talked about it on a lot of episodes, how to do that. So episode 50, talk about how to use Roth conversions, how to implement good tax planning, because I can see just in your question how important that's going to be. If you have three years of living expenses in cash, plus a HELOC that you could use as needed... What that tells me is you have at least a few years of very, very low taxable income, which is the perfect scenario to implement Roth conversions, to start shifting money from pre-tax accounts to after-tax accounts or Roth accounts, especially because at age 70, if you have two big pensions and if you have two maxed out social security benefits and you have to start taking required minimum distributions at that point, you're probably going to be in a pretty high tax bracket. So these first few years of your retirement, if you can do some good Roth conversions, if you can let those Roth conversions compound for several years until 72, the amount of money you can shift into Roth IRAs versus the amount that would ordinarily be in traditional IRAs by the time you turn 72 or required minimum distribution age is probably going to be substantial. So if you haven't done so already, I would certainly recommend listening to episode 50 all about tax planning. But I hope this was a helpful, high level overview of how to look at this. As we mentioned, there's not one way of doing this. There's not a formula, unfortunately, that just tells us how you should manage your retirement portfolio. It's really a personal thing. And by personal, I just mean it's really a reflection of all the unique factors that you have going on for you. So I hope that was helpful. Thank you, Jim, for your question. Very much appreciated. If you are listening and have a question, go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co, and there's a tab called Submit Your Question. You can submit your question. Everything can be kept completely anonymous if you'd like it to be, and you can answer a question there. And if you have that question, I promise you many other people have it too. So I'd love to be able to answer that on future episodes. Thank you for listening. Again, if you haven't already checked it out, please make sure to check out the YouTube channel where we have similar topics and we have similar videos just talking about all things retirement planning and investing. You can find that by going to YouTube and searching for Root Financial Partners. And there'll be lots of videos to supplement what we talk about here on the podcast. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. And there's a page called Submit Your Question, where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.